Surely we would be greatly desirous to know what Elijah knew, namely answers to our prayers. Clearly, 1 Kings 18, in comparison with James chapter 5, sets Elijah as a man who saw prayers answered. Again, some would say, well, God answers all prayers. The answers are one of three, yes, no, or wait. And so we say, well, God clearly answers all prayers. But again, that's one of the times you've got to be very careful in how you define your terms as to God hearing and answering prayers. Because there are times in the Bible where God clearly is said not to hear our prayers. And so the implication there, of course, is that when God does not hear our prayers, he does not answer in the affirmative. It's a, it's a no. Of course, Psalm 66, verse 18 is, is well known. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Written under inspiration of the Spirit of God. A recognition again that if our fellowship with God is hindered due to sin, due to prevalent sin, unrepentant sin, then God does not hear He warned the people of God in the times, uh, again, of Saul's ascension to the throne. He he said to the people, they would cry out in that day, and because of the king which they have chosen, the Lord will not hear you in that day. So yes, we understand the Lord hears. We understand that. But the Lord does sovereignly choose to answer or not according to his will. An example of Elijah is not without significance. Again, if you think back, you might turn briefly to James chapter 5. You'll see in James chapter 5 that the example of Elijah is used not simply to show what God does, but it is used to encourage the saints in James's day that their prayers could also be heard. Again, James chapter 5. It says, I'm going to break into the latter part of verse 16. Louis, again, in our studies, we saw the connection with all of this. But again, verse 16, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And the example that is given, verse 17, is Elias. And Elias, in particular, in his praying of chapter 18 of 1 Kings. But it's not put to us in this way that Elijah is the only sort of righteous man whose prayers are heard. Rather, he's a man subject to like passions as we are. So James does not hold Elijah up as an unattainable example, but rather puts him up as someone just like us. He said, well, Elijah's not like me. Well, I think if Elijah was here, he would say, I'm more like, the, I'm more like you than you know. You know, sometimes we have these heroes of the faith and we sit them up on a pedestal and expect if they were among us, in true humility, they would acknowledge the fact that they are not exactly what we think they are. We see Elijah here as a man who is put, if you like, in the same level as ourselves. And then it says, verse 17, And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by a space of three years and six months. Verse 18, And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Again, so you see, here's answers to prayers. Here's the praying man who sees these prayers answered according to God's will. As I've said already, we acknowledged this and looked at this passage before, again, not all that long ago. And the point we made at that point is 
Who does God answer in prayer? Well, he answers the sincere, fervent praying of a righteous man praying the will of God. That's the sort of prayers God answers. The sincere, fervent prayers of a righteous man praying the will of God. And so we took the time. You'll see in your outline there in the bulletin, we took the time to consider the man. I'm not going over all this material. I just want to simply remind you we saw that Elijah is set forth here as a righteous man. And yet a righteous man subject to like passions as we are. Again, that's just again simply referring to his humanity. It's not a, a reference necessarily to sin and that sort of thing. It's just the fact he is he's like ourselves. But he's a righteous man. Again, please remember very briefly. When the Bible speaks of men as being righteous, it speaks of two separate but connected realities. A righteousness that is imputed to us for Christ's sake, or justified righteousness, that by faith we believe the gospel and we are made the righteousness of God in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5. That's a righteous man. But the Bible knows nothing of a man of legal righteousness who is not also marked by moral righteousness. You see, we can't ever disconnect these two things. Once someone is justified, they are by God's grace a changed and regenerate man, and they therefore become righteous, and they become more righteous. And so the Bible refers to righteous men not only in terms of their legal standing, but also in terms of their moral conduct. And when it comes to prayer, both of these are essential. It's vital. You know, we may pursue a life of ascetic obedience to the will of God. But if we're not justified, our sins separate us from God. Someone could say, you know, hypothetically speaking, they could embark on a life of reformation and seek to do everything that the Bible says. But if their standing is not in Christ Jesus, then their prayers are not heard. On the other hand, there are those who believe that they are justified by God's grace. But due to a life of sin, they grieve the Spirit of God. And they are the ones described in Psalm 66 who regard iniquity in their hearts. And so there are those in the, in the household of the faith. They are part of the, the family of God. But such is their determination to live in a backslidden, sinful state that there's a barrier in their fellowship with God. We've got to keep both these things in mind. As the Bible says towards those who practice consistent sin, the heaven that is over their heads shall be as brass. Just not getting through. You know, sometimes the people of God, I shouldn't say sometimes, often the people of God say, I find prayer a challenge. And there's a place just for the simple counsel that, well, that's true for all of us. And we all struggle with prayer. It's just difficult. But there are some times that prayer is so persistently difficult that the person has to come to terms with the fact that they will not give up some darling sin. A righteous man praying the will of God. The matter then is also here. The man is a righteous man. The matter, uh, as I said in my definition, it is the will of God. And that's this morning's message. And we saw that Elijah prays. He prays that it might not rain Again, that's according to the judgment of God in the Old Covenant law. He's, he's, he's praying the promises of God. If they sin, hold the rain. But also we saw 
in 1 Kings 18, verse number 1, there's a promise. I will send rain upon the earth. And so Elijah then prays for the promise to come to pass. He's praying the will of God. Again, I, I don't need to say much on this, but remind you that you examine your prayer life to ensure that what you're praying for finds equivalent in the Word of God. Now, what you're praying for either has an example of pattern or an exhortation of precept to govern what you pray over. Again, I used the example this morning of the Lord's Prayer. Christ says, this is how you should pray. And I have argued in the past that I believe that essentially every prayer of the child of God finds itself somewhere under those main petitions. And that if, if your prayer is on this, not in, that, in those six petitions, then it's probably not according to the will of God. You want to understand what those things mean? I encourage you, go away and look at your larger catechism and see how it expounds the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. It's a brief study, uh, but it would be helpful to you all to see you're praying over the will of the Lord. It is, of course, the promise of the Scriptures that whatever we ask in the Lord's name, that will He do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, and praying in the name of the Lord is praying the will of God. So it's a righteous man praying over the matter of the will of the Lord. But today I want to really focus on the manner of this, because the manner is what we see particularly in 1 Kings uh, chapter 18. So turn your attention now back to 1 Kings 18, and here we're, we're, not dis- we're not discounting the man. We see he's a justified, sanctified man. The matter is the will of God. But the manner, again, is given to us in the Scriptures. We're given details regarding how he prays. We're told, verse 42, Elijah went up to the top of Carmel and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. And so you'll see in your outline today that I've just very, four very, very simple brief points to draw to your attention before we pray today. First of all, we see that his prayer is private. Private. Verse 42 We saw the separation last week between Ahab and Elijah. Ahab, an unregenerate unbeliever, had no place to fellowship with Elijah in prayer. And it says, Elijah went up to the top of Carmel and he cast himself down upon the earth. Privacy. Not just from Ahab, but from the people. A lot of people there. It's a place of of real tumult, challenges. He withdraw. He withdrew himself from the crowds. Now, you'll understand this is not to be used as a proof text for no prayer meeting in the church. Don't misuse the Bible. And yet there are some people who are determined to misuse the Bible. The New Testament scriptures, the book of Acts in particular, is very clear that the people of God meet together to pray. And a church that does not pray together is not a healthy biblical church. And so there must be seasons where the church comes together and they call upon the Lord. And the fact, again, that there are particular groups of people mentioned in those prayers indicates that there's a, a, a variety of people in that prayer meeting actually praying. It's not just people sitting under the prayers of the minister. There's corporate communal prayers. The people of God helping in the work of the ministry. So what about this privacy? Well, I think the key thing here is 
that prayer is something that we do before God. That even as we come to pray as a group this afternoon, it is vital that you shut yourself in with the Lord as you pray with your brothers and with your sisters. This world is so busy. So much goes on in this world and in our lives. And when it comes to prayer, it is very difficult for us to pray without distraction. But privacy is vital. Shutting ourselves in before God. You know what it's like in general social gatherings. You're in the middle of a conversation with someone. And out of the corner of your eye, you, you see somebody you haven't seen for a while. And you're in this deep conversation, you, you say to the person, Oh, wait a minute. How does the person you're talking to feel about that? Well, we were in a conversation. And you've just suddenly gone off and spoke to someone else. You see, we understand conversation and communion if it's going to be beneficial, is, is very direct and undistracted. And when we're distracted, there's the impression, well, I mustn't be as important as that person is. Their needs must be more than my needs. And there's offense cost. I, I understand our relationship with the Lord is, is on a different level than that. So I understand it, but I trust you understand the point. We are praying to the God of heaven. And we're thinking about sport? Or we're thinking about our bank balance? You may think of your bank balance in prayer. I understand that. But the diligence to discipline ourselves and think carefully in prayer is honoring to God and vital to true spiritual praying. It's not easy. But I've told myself again, and I tell you the same. Privacy. In terms of distraction, avoiding distraction in the place of prayer. The second thing that we note is reverence. It's a private prayer, privacy, but also reverence. We see that in, in a couple of ways. We see that, first of all, in the posture he assumes. Verse 42, he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. Sometimes people ask the question, well, is there a right posture for praying? Uh, remember the first time I was in the Episcopalian church. Uh, I was on vacation with my parents in England, and we went to an Episcopalian church, and uh, I was in the pews, and there were these strange things on the floor. They were prayer stools, and you, could, you, you were meant to kneel down in the prayer stools when you came to prayer, because they, they believed that it was only right and proper to kneel when you came to pray. And so in the pews, you would have these wooden prayer stools. We don't, we don't have those. Are we missing out something? Should we have prayer stools? Is there a right posture to pray? Hands or no hands? Kneel or not kneeling? Fall on your face or not fall on your face? You know, there are various traditions and they've all manner of postures. The Bible gives us multiple postures. You stand and pray. The high priests. No seats in the tabernacle. You fall on your face and pray. Yeah, like Elijah here. You lift your hands, First Timothy chapter 2. You keep your hands down, whatever the case may be. There are multiple postures. The key thing is, your posture should reflect your heart. 
The heart is the issue. And so what you see here is in the posture of Elijah being described, you're seeing his heart. Because you can only see the heart in actions. You can't see the heart any other way. And so his actions here show his heart. And he's assuming the posture of a subject to a king. We we understand that. We see that in the example of Joseph when he's made king or made uh, the prime minister in Egypt. They're told to put a chariot, put him in a chariot, and they're told to bow the knee when he's made ruler over all the land of Egypt. This is the posture of a humble supplicant. Reverence. But not only in posture, but also in address. How he addresses the Lord. Now, we're not told the words of his prayer here in verse number 42. So I'm going to borrow verse number 36. Because in verse 36, we have an example again of the prayers of Elijah, the the prophet of God. And he says, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and I have done all these things at thy word. You see the humility and the reverence of his approach. He had the assurance of God's word, the assurance of God's favor and presence, but he is not presumptuous. Again, many of you have been raised in a time of evangelical over-familiarity with the person of God. This idea that it doesn't matter how we address God. You know, after all, we are justified, we're adopted in the family of God, and therefore God, he commends boldness in the place of prayer. Let us come boldly unto the throne of grace. Boldly. That word is so misused. A child comes boldly when they burst into a room, their parents are in private conversation, and the child bursts into the room and says, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. Brash and bold. Again, maybe excused because of childish immaturity, but you still see that is boldness and brashness. And yet there are some and they encourage us to approach God in a like manner. I think it's interesting when you see one of the most famous verses about prayer in the Bible, first Peter chapter five, we're told to cast all our care upon him. The casting of our care upon him. And that is not the command in the, in, the, in the passage. The command is humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, casting all your care upon him. Humble reverence in the place of prayer is required. Boldness in prayer does not mean brashness. The word itself refers to freedom of speech. That we come with confidence, unhindered, Not brashness. God is our Abba Father, and we approach Him as a Father. But we want our children to approach us with freedom, but not with brashness. So as we pray, we must do so in this reverent fashion. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But thirdly, when we see this prayer is fervent, Uh, And we get the impression of fervency in terms of the language here, verse 42. He cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. You're getting a a posture of someone who is earnest in prayer. 
But the picture here in verse 42 is explained by James in James chapter 5 that he prayed earnestly, literally he prayed in his praying. This is fervent, sincere praying. The implication is that we can pray without praying. We can say prayers without really calling upon the Lord. Formalistic, insincere praying does not get the answer from God. Fervency. Here again, this is misunderstood often. We're looking at all these things in which prayer is misunderstood. The posture, the boldness, and now the fervency. What does fervent prayer look like? I remember times in the in my early days in, in, in the free church, and there were all manner of different people. You know, there were some of the, the older men, and as they prayed, they began quietly, and the prayer got more loud, louder and louder and louder, to the point that the walls began to shake as the prayer increased in intensity. And oh, mighty, fervent praying. And I trust before God they were mighty, fervent prayers. But there's also, there's also the humble widow. Ah, dear saint of God's, you know, an octogenarian. And quietly she called upon God's, slowly, deliberately, and every bit as fervent as that louder man was. The illustration, I trust, helps you to see that fervency is not so much about the words and the speed and the volume of your prayers as it is about praying in faith. Fervent prayers are prayers that are full of faith. Believing that God is able and that God is true to His Word. That's what this passage is all about. He's praying the will of God. And he's praying that fervently because he believes it to be so. Fervent prayers. How do you pray fervently? Well, I think you pray fervently when you pray with the Bible in hand. Again, we shouldn't divorce those two particular spiritual disciplines. I've done my Bible reading, I close my Bible, I put it aside, and now I'm going to pray. No, you read and pray, and you pray and you read, because when you get your Bible out, you know what your Bible does to you? Well, it gives you the promises to pray over. You, you see a promise of God, and you take that to your soul. And perhaps you've gone to the place of prayer with an, an intention, I'm going to pray this today, but then God brings a promise to your mind, and you say, well, I, I'm, I've got to stop that, I'm, I'm going to pray this now. Because I've, I've seen a promise that I can lay hold upon. Do you ever have seasons like that? You want to get beyond the formalistic, I've, I've done my devotions, tick, all done. You want to live before God and feed upon the word of God for your soul that day and lean upon those promises. Allow God to direct your prayer life by the word. Praying the scriptures. But the other thing the Bible does when you pray the Bible, it gives you an abundance of examples that God keeps his promises. And so you, you see that in the Bible. You're reading the Bible. You say, oh, God keeps his promises. Therefore, I can pray fervently to a God who never, ever fails to do what he said he will do. All the promises of God in Christ are yea, and in him they are amen. God is always faithful in keeping his word. And so fervent prayers are full of faith. 
to a God who is able and a God who is always reliable when we come to him pleading his promises. Such faith comes that the Spirit of God works in our souls. So you've got these things private, fervent, sorry, reverent, then fervent, and finally, persistence in prayer. I'm careful here. I don't want to misapply this. You see in verse 42, Elijah prays. And then in verse 43, he goes to the servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. Now, I don't personally believe that that means Elijah is praying seven times. I think he prays, but he understands the answer to the prayer is a prayer that's going to be waited for. Okay, we can discuss and quibble, and again, he may well have prayed continually during that time. But the grammar, to my mind, seems the point that his prayer is done, he then goes to the servant, and what you're seeing here is a persistence in waiting for God's answer. And yes, you look 18. The importunate widow, man should always pray, not faint. Again, in the whole Bible picture, I get the persistence will at times involve repeated praying. But sometimes we are so busy repeating our prayers that we're not looking for the answer. We're not expecting God to answer in the affirmative. And we're, we're going the second and the third time because we presume he will not answer our first prayer. And that may not be praying in faith. That may be praying in doubt. So you've got to examine your own heart, examine your own prayer life, and determine in your mind, well, this is this or this is that. But understand there's a danger of a persistent and praying for the same thing that is marked by unbelief and not by faith in God's promises. So yes, please. Pray the same prayer day after day after day after day. Pray for your loved ones because God is pleased to hear importunate praying. But as you are praying for those same things, you're praying for God to bless the church, for God to save souls, as you're praying for those things week after week, day after day, please don't forget to go and look the seventh time. Keep on looking, expecting for God to answer our prayers. So that when the knock on the door comes and Ruta comes to you and says, it's Peter, you don't say, who's Peter? Because you've been waiting all along for God to answer that prayer. So we see, Elijah is a righteous man praying fervent prayers in the will of God. And God is pleased to hear those prayers. James tells you here today, 1 Kings 18 is for you. It's one of the passages in the Bible that we know directly by the inspired apostle, this is for you today. You're just like Elijah. So learn the lessons and call upon God. And may God be pleased to hear our prayers today for his name's sake.